This is the RSM Orthopedic Section Podcast. We feature global experts and key opinion leaders discussing innovation, progress, and current practice within their subspecialties. My name is Akib Khan, and I'm an orthopedic registrar on the Section Council, and I'll be your host on this podcast. Welcome. Today, I'm joined by Professor Justin Cobb. Professor Cobb is a professor of orthopedic surgery at Imperial College London and has a vast experience in procedures of the hip and knee. We're very grateful to have you here today on the podcast. Welcome. Well, it's very nice to be here. So we're going to speak about outcome of arthroplasty and a little bit about the approach and the procedure. And my first question for you is, when trying to determine the outcome between different hip approaches, can we rely on patient-reported outcome measures? So um, the simple answer is, um, right now, no, we should be able to, but um, it's very difficult to do that with the co- commonly used measures today because the, the, what, the dominant one in the UK is the Oxford HIT score, which is a very good preoperative score. It was developed as a preoperative score. It really wasn't developed to distinguish between people having had different sorts of procedures. And I think in the, in the preamble, it says over the last four weeks, um, I think in, in, you've got to rate how you are with your score over the last four weeks when the impact of the soft tissue element of hip surgery is all much shorter term than that. It would not shorter term than four weeks, but it's short term, it's not long term. Um, there's so much good evidence now out that after six months or so, whether you go behind or in front of the abductor mechanism, they're both equally good. The transgluteal, um, there's pretty strong evidence, I would say, the transgluteal is not quite as good in functional terms. But whether you go front or back, in the end, they function the same. But the, the, um, the big difference between the two is in the short term. And, and the patient report, the current patient reported outcome measures just aren't really developed to measure people's function uh, day by day and week by week. And the, 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 that short-term uh, problem of seeing how people do in the first days and weeks and months, well, now, if you've got a substantial benefit in the first month postoperatively, that's a very precious thing in terms of resource. So if you're trying to run a, a hip arthroplasty program and you can get half of the patients out of hospital within the first 24 hours, the benefit to your um, business unit in the hospital will be substantial, but it won't be captured if you rely on the six-month Oxford Hip School. You know, that, that won't count out at all. So there's a huge benefit that you might be able to offer your hospital that won't be captured by conventional problems. So we definitely, it's not good enough right now, just on the sensitivity of those short-term outcomes. And the other major problem is the seeding effect. Um, That is a a, a huge issue. The commonest score by far after after a hip replacement is full marks on the Oxford score. So if you want to know how good people are, you cannot use that score. You've got to use the score without a seeding effect like that. Now, in terms of scores that or potential metrics that we could use to guide us um, when we're thinking about the outcome from these uh, procedures, 
you mentioned a few interesting things and you showed some data on speed and gait. And is that potentially an outcome measure that we should be measuring? Yeah, I would I would separate outcome measures into subjective ones and objective ones. And subjectively, we mentioned the object it's called, it just um isn't it's it's not sensitive enough. So if, if you really want to see how good someone is, you've got to use a score that can show you that. Um the Harris hip score, which is very similar, and the forgotten joint score, and the WOMAC and EQ5D all have ceiling effects. So if you really want a normal distribution in your post-operative patients, then I'd strongly recommend people look at the MET, the metabolic equivalent of task, which is free. It's it's um, updated every now and again. You simply ask the patient what activities are they enjoying at the moment. You don't have to say how many hours a day are you doing or anything like that. You simply ask them for the activities they can do. And we ask them for three different activities. And if we simply look at that activity they're doing on the, on the University of Arizona State, this huge lookup table of 400 odd activities, and you look at the how many kilocalories per hour you burn doing whatever it is they're doing, then you get a normal distribution post-op. And if you've got a normal distribution post-op with, so no skew post-op and adequate kurtosis, so not everybody getting um, the median, you have an, a nice smooth bell curve. If you've got a nice bell, smooth bell curve, you may be able to distinguish people in that bell curve. Um, and so the, as a subject to score, I would say the MET index is a great one. Um, it can completely spread out, for instance, people who got 48 out of 48 on the Oxford HIP score, it will completely separate out the hip resurfacing from the hip replacements. There's a 20% difference in MET for people with a score of 48 out of 48 others. So subjectively, there's a score that anybody can use. It's a single variable um, and it's continuous variable. It's validated. Interestingly enough, your activity level as measured by the MET is absolutely related to life expectancy. So if you're, and there's a linear response in MET between um, being sort of only just pedestrian up to regular running, um, there's a linear relationship between that and life expectancy. And the, the, the people who do diabetes and heart disease sort of stuff, they recognize, they recognize that. Objectively, the, you mentioned walking. Um, we've been using a, an instrument, a treadmill in, in Imperial for, for 10 years now. And that allows us to capture people's gates, not just stroll along at comfortable speed, but actually, can you go a bit faster than that? And, and of course, people will say, is there any face validity to walking speed? Um, does, does it matter if you walk fast or not? Well, I don't know that, but people definitely um, are able to hurry at different speeds. And so it is a variable. I'm not defending it as the most important sort of thing in the world, but it's a nice variable. Um, and if you use top walking speed as a variable, again, it's tethered to life expectancy. All right, so a, a 0.1 meters per second difference in, in walking speed 
translates to, to a difference, a clinically important difference in your life expectancy in general health terms. And if we use that metric of walking speed, again, it's normally distributed post-op and it's, it's got adequate kurtosis, so it's quite sensitive. So, so fit, young, healthy people will walk at seven and a half or even eight kilometers an hour. Whereas if you've got a sore knee or a sore hip, you won't walk. You might walk at four kilometers an hour. You'd probably say four and a half, that's enough for me, or five, that's enough for me. And so um, that's a nice continuous variable. Again, it really spreads people apart. Um, and it, there's a, a big, there's an extensive literature um, on walking speed post um, hip replacement, um, showing how effective hip replacement is. Not only just velocity gets faster, but also all the elements behind velocity. So your stride length, for instance, you know someone's walking well if using their gearbox. Um, which is a continuously variable gearbox, they just smoothly increase their stride length and their cadence as they go faster and faster. Now, after hip replacement, the short stride turns into a longer stride. There's a big pre-op to post-op difference in, in quite a few of those gait characteristics, not just stride length, but quite a few of them. If you then look at the difference between someone with a hip replacement and a healthy control, there's as big a difference as between pre and post-op hip arthroplasty. So there's a lot of upside there. So you can use those gait characteristics to distinguish between people post-op. And I haven't made this up. There's lots of people who have done this. And if you if you want to use smartphone and stuff, and as a, as a registrar or um, interested in your patients, just saying, can I have a look at your phone, please? Can I see how many steps you're doing a day, well, some of those apps will give you a top speed during the day as well. And if you simply ask a patient to go around the block, there's a very nice paper, um, I think randomized even, between anterior and posterior total hip using just a smartphone. And in the first um, month and six weeks, and even up to three months, there is daylight between the anterior and the posterior approach, just using a smartphone. No swanky gate lab, no, nothing like that, just a smartphone, showing exactly the same thing, the stride lengths are longer with the anterior approach earlier, um, but, but then that, that difference decays. So they by, by three or four months, they're getting very close to really, and by six months, you can't really tell the difference between them. So we've got subjective and objective metrics that, that really exist. They're there, they're, they're accessible to everybody, um, and they can they can distinguish between these things. They, there are real differences, um, which I think is quite exciting that there are these differences. That's really interesting. And you've kind of touched on this a little bit already, and in terms of the approach of the hip, and you've, you've been talking about the anterior and, you know, posterior approach. Um, does the approach actually matter? Because you mentioned some early metrics and then later on things may, may or... Yeah, and, and it's a really important question. Does it matter? And what, as you and I both know, what matters most is that um, the patient doesn't have any complications. And so by far the most important thing for any individual person is that their operation is done by someone who's able to do it. And... And so it's much better to have any approach you like done it well 
than any approach you like done badly. So the difference between well and badly is bigger than the difference between the different approaches. However, in a trained, and this is not I, this is not my work at all, but there are now, I think, there are some, I think about nine randomized controlled trials now of anterior against posterior approaches, all showing this benefit in early mobilization. And in every sensible bit of the world, the cost of delivery of care should be relevant. And that, that cost is a bundle. It's not just our time in the operating theatre. It's the whole package of care. And I've no doubt, whatever, that your generation, there'll be a whole lot of your generation who will be able to be very effective arthroplasty surgeons without any inpatient beds. And if that's true, if you can deliver arthroplasty safely without an inpatient footprint, then suddenly you're a very attractive person to have in the hospital and you can be very productive because you're keeping all the value in the operating theatre. You're not wasting 20 or 30% of the cost of the procedure in, out, in inpatient care, simply getting over the soft tissue injury, not the arthroplasty itself. So I do think it's a very relevant thing to talk about. And there's a big body of knowledge out there showing the difference between trained surgeons and um, doing, doing the same thing. There is really a big substantial body of knowledge. That's really interesting. And do you think that the implant choice matters? Because um, obviously you may be using different implants between a posterior approach mm -hmm. and an anterior approach. Mm -hmm. And why, and why yeah. does that matter? Yeah. So I, I would like to say that there is clear water between different sorts of implants in functional terms. But I've, no, I've, never, I've not yet seen that. We've tried to show the difference, for instance, between short stems and long stems in functional terms. I can't... I can't show that. Um, we haven't yet been able to show it. I think it's coming. And I think if you like um, um, the sort of philosophy of knowledge, then naturally a good, a reasonable prediction would be that leaving the bone um, material properties the same is more likely to be beneficial to the patient than changing those material properties. So if you can keep that bone flexible, it'll probably work better. And so functionally, it'll be better. And its resistance to proprocytic fractures will be better if you can keep the bone nice and elastic. So I absolutely think that shorter stems should be better than longer stems. But I can't, personally, I can't show that. The um, Just that's a simple stomach thing. When it comes to the... Um, blades versus um, more bigger, sort of more zymolary type stems. Um, I think the jury again would say there isn't really strong evidence one way or another for that they all work perfectly well. So there's a huge family of um, quite blocky, short ish stems. So big resistance to twisting from the four corners, if you like. And then there's obviously lots of blades where they are very thin, but they get right out of the cortex. And they're both addressing the same problem. I think they both work perfectly well. And of course, cemented stems work perfectly well too. So all of these um, um, answers are fine. And, and we both, I think everybody appreciates, if you're doing something well and you've acquired those skills, 
that's just fine. Um, it's unlikely that anybody is going to be able to show a, a, a major difference in functional terms between stems. I would say it's, it's not likely, um, in particularly not likely over 70. Um, or in people who are unable to take exercise. In people who can take exercise, um, then I think you will be able to show, show it. And, and, and obviously, the people who are taking exercise continue. A 72-year-old woman was asking me this morning in clinic, was asking me, how, what, what's the maximum number of kilos she'd be happy with her deadlifting? <laughs> And, and so the rules for, for people fit people in their 60s, 70s and 80s are challenging their bodies in ways that we never ever thought they were going to. And they're going to live forever. So the, the longer term consequences of big bits of metal are, are going to be great. So I would say headlines, if you're using a stem, that you're good at using that stem, that's a great, great, a great um, thing to carry on doing. It looks as though the shorter stems will work. And because you're allowing the bone to flex more normally with less metal inside you, the if your patient starts wanting to run, the difference in stiffness won't cause that to break out of a cement mantle, for instance. So, so I think the shorter stems have some attraction. I think the decision about cement or cementless, it's um, you can do either. You can do either. The one weird thing, I don't know whether it'll come up again, but the um, the weird thing about the anterior approach, and this is played out across the whole literature right now, if you do a hip replacement on someone through an anterior approach, you really don't disturb their muscles very much. They don't really have any very much pain postoperatively. It's very surprising how little pain they get postoperatively. And therefore, they get up and walk around. And because they can, the physios have them doing sort of one leg squats and God knows what. And if you if you're doing that, you're challenging the um, integrity of that proximal femur, which has been injured by a, um, a lusty orthopedic surgeon with a rasp and a hammer. And so the, the early periprosthetic fractures, I think the, the in quotes, good explanation for the undoubtedly larger group of periprosthetic fractures in the direct anterior is that the patients use their femurs so much more. Whereas if you take off the whole short, all the short rotators off the back, you depower that hip for a while. They don't get getting, going so fast, so the bone has a chance to heal before you power it up. And I think that's, um, um, I don't have the answer here, but it's an interesting uh, domain. Um, how quickly you should load up a femur that's just had some bruiser rasping it and hammering it and goodness knows what. It's a very interesting thought. So, so in your opinion, who stands to potentially benefit the most from a direct anterior approach? Um, that's a good question. I, I think on a societal level, the biggest number of bed days available um, here are the hemiarthroplasty patients. You know, the, the, our, our fractionated femur population, they, I think the value of that, the cost of a, of a fractionated femur intervention is very much more than a total hit because they have to stay in so much longer. Why do they stay in so much longer? Frailty, of course, and both orthopedic and non-orthopedic complications of their um, recovery. 
and again, this is not literature I've contributed to at all, but the, there's extensive literature on the hemiarthroplasty population showing that the direct anterior allows them to get up more quicker. However, as you know, in the UK, and I don't think there's any paper, there's not one paper from the UK about this. And the, the reason I think is that the hemiarthroplasty service is mainly delivered by trainees rather than trained surgeons. And they are told to use an approach which is, in quotes, safe, close quotes, and easy to learn and easy to teach with a reasonably low short, um, learning curve. And so rather than the same way a posterior approach actually defunctions the femur for a while, so you don't get periprostate fractures early, or the anterolateral approach defunctions the femur a bit more. And so you don't get any local complications, but the rehab is quite slow. And so um, I think that group of people have a lot to benefit from, but we're working very hard right now in college and anybody who's interested, you know, get in touch um, at developing a training regime so that every single trainee can get skilled up. Um, and I think that's an interesting thread. So, so the big, the people the most to gain are the elderly and the second most to gain are the self-employed. Because if you're self-employed, if you're not running your corner shop, some wretched urchin is stealing sweets from, from you by you not being there. So the, the self-employed want to get back to work sooner. And to say, I, I can get you back to work sooner, well, that would be a lovely thing to be able to say to those people. Um, and of course, the, the, Her Majesty is the last person who stands to gain because she is hard pushed to pay for um, the healthcare to all her large subjects. And if we can reduce the cost of care, she'll be able to, her hard-fought hard um, coffers will be kept full by our being much better value for money. There you go. That's a very interesting thought. Um, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. Great, I really enjoyed it. Thank you.